Hello there, welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast, episode 46. From the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, this is Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell. We're brought to you each week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Our program airs live every afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on WZON, WKIT, HD3 out of Bangor, Maine. Streaming audio on our website at downtownwithrichkimball.com. And you can download the handy WZON app and take us with you anywhere you go on the planet. And maybe into some of the inner planets. I don't believe it will work on the Kuiper Belt or anything like that. But, you know, in the neighborhood, it comes in just fine couple of great guests for you this week. We're going to flash back to the 1960s with a couple of legends from that time period. Burt Ward, who starred, of course, as Robin in the original Batman television series, and the great Hal Blaine, the drummer for The Wrecking Crew, that talented group of L.A. studio musicians. Hal passed away recently at the age of 90, but we wanted to salute him by looking back at our conversation from a few years ago. And we'll do that in the second half of the podcast this week. But let's get it underway by featuring a conversation with actor Burt Ward, the original Robin, who has never run away from that. And I am impressed with the fact that, unlike a lot of people who had success very early in their career with a role that was hard to shake, He's always embraced that and continued to play that part in some animated series as well. But he's also doing a lot of good things these days, along with his wife, Tracy, for dogs, uh, both as foster parents and by creating a line of very healthy dog food that he believes can uh, make lives better and, and maybe longer as well. Here's our conversation with the original Robin, Burt Ward. Does it still make you scratch your head that people remain so fascinated with this tremendous show from over 50 years ago? You, you know, no, I fully understand why. I mean, when Batman came out uh, January 12, 1966, we were unlike any other television show in history. Uh, number one, we had a completely broad appeal for the kids. It was the hero worship of, you know, superheroes and, and them riding in the Batmobile, climbing walls, fighting heinous villains. And for the uh, adults, it was the nostalgia of the comic books. And for the teenagers and college kids that were a really tough audience to reach at that point, it was the comic, the camp, campy style, the, the subtle double meanings and all the suggestiveness we did. So that was a big appeal. But also I think what was even a bigger appeal was the fact that the first time in television history, instead of the audience just kind of like a third party watching the action, that we really reached through the television set to affect people directly. We used to say that we put on our tights to put on the world. And because we went directly at the audience with, with all the kinds of things we did, you know, I think it was the very basis of what now you have with all these successful, you know, superhero movies, uh, not just Batman, but Superman and Marvel movies, all these fantastic movies where not only do they have superheroes, but if you look at the interaction between the actors right in the middle of the most dangerous things like one could turn to another and just have some you know small comment well you know i don't like the fire you know <laughs> whatever it might be you see what i mean well yeah so i think it doesn't surprise me in other words well you guys were the template in so many ways and i think the most successful of those franchises that have continued have have also borrowed from you guys the humor that was such a big part of it right it, that that humor 
so right, in the, you know, like I, I remember one of my lines uh, where uh, we came in on the uh, against the villain, and there there was all these henchmen here, and I looked at Batman. I said, "Batman, there's eight of them against two of us. Odds in our favor." <laughs> Well, the show can still be seen everywhere. I love catching it on cable. And and one of the things that remark is remarkable, obviously it holds up, but it looks so good. That visual style was so unique, and those shows look fantastic today. Well, and in color, you know, I mean, right. this was right when color first came out, and Batman was probably the most colorful show you could possibly imagine. You look at our outfits, Batman and Robin, and look even at the the villains out this and the look at the villains hideout with you know where secret hideout all these markings you know secret entrance all of these things you know it was just this wild campy style but look at the pows and the zaps with the fight scenes the batman theme music i mean people just went nuts they loved it well and you got an amazing group of guest stars and once the show became such a huge success seemingly everybody in hollywood wanted to be a part of it uh, absolutely, and the problem was there wasn't enough different villain roles to accommodate so many people. That's why the producers set up that segment of each of our shows where Batman and Robin are climbing up the wall, and then a window opens with some very famous celebrity like Sammy <laughs> Davis Jr., Jerry Lewis, Don Ho, Betty White, Colonel Clink, Lurch. I mean, it goes on and on and on of all these people, and it you know everybody just loved it. And for the actors, oh my gosh, the pressure from their children to get on our show was <laughs> immense. We're talking with Burt Ward here on Downtown. Now, what people may not know is that it was also a pretty dangerous show, and you often bore the brunt of that, having to do a number of stunts yourself. And you spent a, more than a few days in the emergency room early on. Is that right? Well, uh, well actually, uh, yes. Actually, for the first six days of filming, I visited the emergency <laughs> Uh, the award of the hospital uh, unexpectedly had never even been to an emergency ward, uh, you know, and uh, it was because, well, I'll give you an example. Day one, right in the very beginning, very first shot, day one, Bronson Canyon, the famous scene coming out of the Batmobile where uh, I, you know, the I got dressed, got the makeup on. They said, OK, Bert, go into the cave, get in the Batmobile and we're going to shoot this scene. So I get in the Batmobile. I look over and at first I thought it was Adam dressed as Batman. But as my eyes began to focus in the dim light, I could see that it wasn't Adam. And I said, well, who are you? And the guy said, I'm Hubie. I said, oh, well, why are you here? He says, because this is a very dangerous shot and the studio doesn't want to take a chance of Adam West getting hurt. I said, oh, well, that's good. <laughs> and then I started to think for a minute. I said, well, wait a minute. Do, do I have a stuntman? He said, oh, yeah, you have one. I said, oh, well, that's good, too. Well, where is he? Oh, he's over having coffee with Adam last time I saw him. <laughs> well, wait a minute. I don't, if this is that really dangerous, why isn't he doing it? So I don't know. So I, I, there, now I can hear him roll it up, getting ready to start. I said, wait, whoa, 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 there's a terrible mistake here. And the second assistant director comes over and says, Bert, what is it? What is it? You know? And I said, I, I mean, this man tells me this is a dangerous stunt. He says, yeah, yeah, it is. And, and he says that I have a stunt man who's having coffee with Adam. Yeah, what's that got to do with you? Well, why isn't he sitting here for this dangerous shot instead of me? Oh, we can't use him. I said, you, you can't use him? Why? Well, he doesn't look like you. <laughs> oh, my God. You hire a stuntman to be my stuntman. He doesn't look like me. Why is that? Well, couldn't find anybody. 
<laughs> so you got to do it yourself, Bert. So sure enough, we come out of the back gate, 55 miles an hour coming out of this cave, directly at the camera, make this swerving sharp left turn, which is exactly, the stuntman did it perfectly, but unexpectedly, my door flew open. And the centrifugal force was throwing me out the door. And just by pure luck, I, my, I reached my hand behind me and caught my little finger on the gear shift knob. It kept me from falling out, but pulled my finger right out of the joint. Mm. And that's incredibly painful. My door knocked the cameraman off the camera truck and knocked a big arc lamp over, which if that had fallen, somebody could have killed him. So what, what they stopped everything, people ran over, and they saw me, you know, Bert, you okay? I said, yeah, but my hand is hurting. And even through the glove, my finger had already doubled in size. They said, oh, my gosh, it looks like your finger's out of joint. we got to get you to a hospital. I said, okay, okay. And, and I got out of the car. Well, where's the car? Oh, well, we can't go now. <laughs> what do you mean? Oh, we didn't get the shot. Oh, well, when can I go? Well, as soon as we get the shot. That was at 730 in the morning. I left for the emergency hospital at noon. Man, and, man. And that was killing me all that time. That was day one. Day two, second, uh, second degree burns from explosions. Day three, a two by four lands on my nose, breaks my nose, broken nose. I'm telling you, I didn't think I was going to survive the first week. That's incredible. Uh, we're talking with Burt Ward. I'll tell you the studio. I'll tell you, I got to tell you the studio. Oh, yeah, please. Smart. They were very smart. They took out a giant insurance policy on me. <laughs> and I could swear by the end of the third season, they were trying to collect on that policy. Wow. Uh, the chemistry you had with Adam West was so tremendous, and that was uh, a big part of the success of the show. And that was that was a real thing. You remained friends uh, all the way up until Adam's death. Yes, we were very close friends. Adam and I, well, we met, believe it or not, we screen tested together. And we met on the set of the screen test 10 minutes before the screen test. And I'll tell you something, within five minutes, the two of us talking together were laughing. And we never stopped laughing for over 50 years. I mean, he just had the greatest personality, the funniest person. He just was just so incredibly a nice guy. And, and on Batman, we played up that chemistry. You know, I really believe with all the great comic duos in history, your Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy, you know, uh, I mean, Johnny Carson, you know, I mean, all these people, they had a foil. They had... They had someone who was just opposite, you know. I mean, Ed McMahon was just the opposite of Johnny Carson. Mm. And, and, you know, some were tall, some were small, some were short, some were heavy, you know, whatever. There was always contrast, and I think that's what makes for great humor, contrast. Well, we could talk Batman all day, but I, I want to talk about what you and your wife have been doing for many, many years now because it's some incredible work. And as a, a dog owner and a dog lover, I, I want to hear more, first of all, about the more than, is it more than 15,000 dogs that you fostered together through the years? Yeah, well, my wife and I, we operate the largest giant free dog rescue in the world. It's called Gentle Giants. And in 25 years of rescuing dogs, we've saved more than 15,500, everyone from being put to death on their last day in, a, in an animal shelter or given up to us by an owner. And in the course of saving these dogs, all of which, by the way, they haven't lived in some other building or some other property, every one of the 15,500 has lived in our house with us in the last 25 years. At all times, I have a minimum of 50 in my house, Okay. All sizes. We have 45 different breeds. We started with the giant breeds, but now 
I mean, we have all size breeds, but in the course of doing this, rescuing these animals, saving them from death, we discovered a way to help dogs live longer. And not just a little bit longer, we have doubled and tripled the lifespan of dogs, okay, up to 27 years. And, and including giant breed dogs that only live six to eight years, now living into their 20s. And the way we do it, okay, is by creating a special feeding and care program. And, and we feed dogs differently, we care for dogs differently, and we came up with a dog food that is different than every other dog food in the world. It is so dramatically different. And dogs on our food, most people tell us after a month of feeding their dog Gentle Giants, which is the name of our rescue and the name of our dog food, they think they have a different dog after a month. I mean, the dog is so much healthier. Older dogs are playing like puppies again. And what we've done, because this is our charity, and we take no money from this, no salary, is that we went to Walmart and we said, we want to give you the only dog food in the world that dogs can live up to 27 years. We're going to take nothing from it. But we do ask you that you bring it to the public as inexpensively as possible. And they've done that. Our Gentle Giants dog food, retails in Walmart and other grocery stores across the country at less than half the price of what you would pay for a food in a pet store that won't keep your dog living up to 27 years. So our motto became half the price and twice the life. It's our charity. And every day we get hundreds of calls from people all across America. Oh, I just heard about this and where can I get it? And, and how do I feed my dog differently? And, and, and all these different things. And it all works marvelously. And, and I thought one of the most fascinating things in reading about it, and we'll talk about what goes into the food itself, because that's important, but it's that way of feeding your dogs differently. First of all, getting their food up off the floor. So especially the larger breeds aren't constantly leaning forward, but also feeding them more frequently, but a little less each time, rather than those who, who feed a dog everything they eat for the entire day in one big meal. Exactly. Well, let me give you the science behind it. In terms of raising the food, okay, there's two, it's food and water raised, and there is a specific height for every single dog. And that height is such that when the dog comes over to eat or drink, they never lean down. They only tilt their head down to eat or drink. They don't lean up, they don't lean down. Why is this? Why? Because two major reasons. One, there's a deadly condition in the United States that kills 10% of all the dogs. Okay, it's called bloat and torsion. Not just in the United States, actually it's worldwide. But if, if the dog leans down and gets air into their stomach, they can bloat, okay? And or if they ingest, they lean down and they ingest food into their lungs, they can aspirate, both of which can kill the dog. So we elevate the food for that reason. But there's something else. Here's what it is. Here's how we have dogs living so long. Most dogs, by the time they're eight or nine years old, start to have a problem getting up. They start to have a problem walking, okay? And what happens, as I call it in the real world, within a couple of the years, the dog can't get up anymore, and you're having to try to help it outside. And if that dog weighs 50 pounds or more, most people give up. The dog is you know, going to the bathroom on itself. They take the dog in to the vet and have it euthanized, even though the dog is perfectly alert. So what is happening? The dog's body is prematurely wearing out. By the techniques we show people how to do, the dog's body doesn't prematurely wear out. That dog's body is still active in their 20s. And how the food ties in, real quickly, I'll tell you just two gigantic things that are different from our food and everybody else. All the other dog foods, to my knowledge, inject massive amounts of 
sap into dogs. Mm. Why? Because it makes dogs hungrier to make you feed them more, to make you buy more dog food. I find that unconscionable. But there's something even worse. And that is, if you've ever felt dog food, and if you have got a dog, I'm sure if you felt that food, you feel that slightly greasy feeling on the outside. Mm, Why is that there? It's there because dogs love the smell and taste of meat, but they don't like the smell and taste of fat. So in order to get dogs to eat their fat-saturated food, some manufacturers are spraying this chicken fat on the outside that dogs will eat to cover up the smell of the fat on the inside, a double whammy of fat. But worst of all, you would never take bacon grease or animal fat and pour it down your garbage disposal, right? Because you know it would clog it. And once it hardens, you'd be buying a new garbage disposal. So my point is this. When you realize that animal fat will ruin a metal garbage disposal, what do you think that animal fat is doing to the intestines and arteries of the dogs you love? Wow. Big difference. We don't have the fat on the inside, added fat, and we don't have the grease on the outside. And that alone can add five or ten years to your dog's life. Just that alone. But we do a bunch of other stuff. And this is our charity. You can get more information, by the way, by going to the website, GentleGiantsDogFood.com. As Bert mentioned, the food is available at Walmart, but also a couple of the online retailers, uh, Chewy.com. Walmart.com, PetSmart.com, GentleGiantsDogFood.com, which is our website, all available. And And the great thing is, People can call and get help. Where? Tell me, Rich, where in today's world can you get free help? I don't know any place except calling us. Well, and it's more than just the food. As you point out on the website, it's really a program, and all that information is available. And, and you know, we love nothing more than our, our pets, and you want to keep them around. And it's not just keeping them around as long as you can, but it's that quality of life. And I've got to think exactly. that's just as valuable. Exactly. And think of it this way. My wife, Tracy, and I spent the last 25 years of our life learning and putting on our website, which your listeners can learn in less than 25 minutes. That took us 25 years. Wow. You talk about efficiency. Every one of your listeners who's got a dog can add five to 10 years to their dog's life if they just follow what took us all these years to learn. Well, it's great information. Check it out on the website, GentleGiantsDogFood.com. Bert, I I kicked myself. You know, I was in that target audience. I was eight years old when Batman made its debut in 1966. Somewhere, somewhere I lost that lunchbox. I would kill for that right now. (laughs) You you know, it's so funny because when I would go out and make appearances, people would come up. And they would pull out, for example, one of these trading cards, you know, these little like oh, yeah. trading cards that had bad. Let me tell you something. That every square millimeter of that trading card was wrinkled. I mean, that trading card, and they would pull this thing out. It was barely held together to ask me to sign it. Or that launch box that you're referring to that had a million dents in it, that that was <laughs> their treasured lunch box. Oh, I mean, people save these things, and, you know, Adam and I would autograph them. We autograph photos. We answer questions. People love to have their photo taken with us. And, you know, it was as big a thing for the parents as it is for the kids. I mean, the kids of yesterday are the parents of today. And and they, they get just as big a kick out of meeting Adam and I as we, you know, when they were kids. Now, before we let you go, I I do want to ask, because there have been people who had successes early in their career and got identified strongly with a role and and, and ran from that and tried to avoid talking about it. But you and Adam as well uh, embraced that through the years. Why did you take that approach to it? 
Well, let me tell you. Think of it this way. If you have a glass that is full, right? It's full. It could be full with a hundred different things in it, or you could be full with one major project that has a few other smaller ones with it. And it's still full. And our lives have been full. And, and with all the pleasure of, of, that we have brought, and, and, and that's a great kick for me, to the, the, the happiness for so many kids. I had one FBI agent that I met. Uh, last year, I was uh, the uh, Grand Marshal at the Huntington Beach Fourth uh, of July Parade, actually one of the biggest in the nation. And in fact, it's so big that when they have over 100,000 people, the Homeland Security gets involved. There were FBI agents there and all of this. And one of them came up to me, introduced himself, and said, you know, as a kid, I might have gone in the wrong direction, but I watched Batman, and I decided to get in law enforcement, and I'm happily married with three kids, and I got a wonderful life, and, and, and I owe it all to what I learned watching Batman. I said, well, I'm sure you learned a lot of other stuff, but it was still a great compliment that we were able to do something good for people. And just like doing good for people and rescuing people in Gotham City, I never stopped rescuing. Now I'm rescuing dogs. I like to say that I was the Cape Crusader, and now I am the Canine Crusader. <laughs> Before we let you go, I just had to ask about the experience uh, uh, that you had with uh, going back 50 years later and working on the animated film together um, back in, in 2016. The chance to you know, go back and really revisit those characters. Yes, well, well, look, for me, I never left it. And I'll tell you, there were two feature films, you know, uh, Batman, Return of the Cape Crusaders, and the second one, Batman versus Two-Face, okay? And that one had William Shatner in it. I mean, can you imagine here <laughs> the two most iconic TV shows in history, Batman and Star Trek, mm. with the actors working together? But but for me, it you know, people say, well, was it hard to get back in character? I said, no, you have to understand, when I was selected to do it, the executive producer, uh, William Dozier, came to me and said, Bert, we interviewed 1,100 young actors, and there's a reason we picked you. I said, well, what's that? He says, because in our mind, forgetting television, if there really, for real, was a Robin, we think that you personally would be it. So we don't want you to take on some other character. What you are is what we want. So we only want you to be yourself and be enthusiastic, which is what I did for 120 episodes. So being myself, whether it's a year ago, 50 years ago, or 100 years ago, it's not going to change. It's the same, so it's instantly easy for me to take on the character. Well, uh, you and Adam brought joy to a lot of people for many, many years, and uh, now uh, you're continuing to keep joy around by keeping our dogs healthier and happier and live a longer life. So, uh, Bert, thank you so much for all you and Tracy do, and thank you so much for visiting with us this afternoon. Well, thank you, Citizen Automobile. That is Burt Ward here on Downtown, the podcast. When we come back, one of the most prolific drummers in the history of rock and roll, if you don't know his name, boy, you know probably hundreds of the songs that he played on. The great Hal Blaine of the Wrecking Crew coming up after this from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. 
We're back on Downtown, the podcast. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell, and Nancy Sinatra. You keep saying you've got something for me. Something you call love, but confess. You've been a messin' where you shouldn't have been a messin'. Our next guest on the podcast played drums on that song, was musical director for Nancy Sinatra for a number of years, and virtually a who's who of rock, pop, and R&B recordings of the 60s bear his unmistakable drum beat. We're talking about the legendary Hal Blaine, who passed away recently at the age of 90. We wanted to salute him by remembering our conversation with Hal from the summer of 2015. The great Hal Blaine of the Wrecking Crew, as we remember our conversation from just a few years ago here on Downtown. Hey, Rich, it's a pleasure, man. My goodness, I love Maine. I'm a, I'm originally I'm originally from Massachusetts. That's right. You're a, you're a Holyoke, so Massachusetts I'm, guy, right? Exactly. I was a Holyoke drummer. We moved over to Hartford, Connecticut. So I spent all my youth in on the East Coast. Well, and you also spent significant time in the most famous group of session musicians in the history of popular music, uh, The Wrecking Crew, your story now being told in a documentary that uh, I just can't wait to see. And it's it's kind of uh, done by one of your own in a sense that Tommy Tedesco's son, Denny, has put this whole thing together. Denny is, has been doing, uh, he's been a director of commercials for some time, and his brother Damon is one of the great engineers who did the, who did the Super Bowl lately, and uh, on and on and on. But you know, unfortunately, Tommy passed away. He was a cancer victim, and so Denny d- decided to do this film as a tribute to his dad. And it God, he's been working on it seventeen, eighteen years, and we uh, we got together at the very beginning. At a little studio in in Glendale, and we started a little round table, and that started off the whole thing. And now that's it's amazing because I was at I was at the um, Amoeba Record Store yesterday for a major turnout because the film, The Wrecking Crew, had its official release date on DVDs and uh, Blu-rays, and et cetera, et cetera. And we must have signed, I don't know, four, five, six hundred autographs. It was just amazing time in Hollywood. Well, it's an amazing story. I mean, you guys played for everybody in the music business, uh, 150 top ten hits, 40 number ones. You played on eight songs that won the Grammy for Record of the Year, including at one point a stretch of six years in a row where you played on the record of the year. That's pretty remarkable. Exactly. And I was sh- totally shocked because we did do Glenn Campbell's um, Not Gonna Miss Her, I think it's called. Right. That was record of the year. That was my eighth record of the year. I didn't think I'd ever get any more of those. Well, it's, it's amazing stuff here. And the people you've worked with along the way, the talented folks uh, in the Wrecking Crew, uh, which, by the way, I understand is a name that you came up with. That's that's exactly the truth. Uh, I was working for Walt Disney as an actor, and at one point we went in to do uh, some work on a film. I believe it was Herbie the Car, and uh, the uh, producer, the conductor, rather, 
Oh, I wish I could remember his name. He started talking to us because we were the new kids on the block, so to speak. He had no idea that we were doing everybody's records. We were doing hundreds of commercials, television shows. We were doing everything. And this poor guy was doing his best to talk to us as, as a bunch of kids in Levi's and T-shirts and trying to explain that we're going to slowly try and rehearse some of this music. And there's a one scene we're going to use some of your rock and roll music, et cetera, et cetera. And we accidentally, the lady that hit the click track, it we, we played it perfect. And the producer, when he finished, the conductor rather said, my God, how did you guys do that? It was perfect. I wish we'd have made it. And Tommy Tedesco, in his own wonderful way, stood up and said, well, sir, we practice a lot during the day. <laughs> and that became one of the byphrases that we always use when producers would say, God, that was great, guys. How did you do that? Somebody would always say, we practice a lot during the day. Well, you uh, you're part of Phil Spector's Wall of Sound, and I think you could easily make the case that your drums at the start of Be My Baby by the Ronettes might be the most iconic drum beat in the history of rock music. It's pretty incredible. I mean, even to me, I can, I can hardly believe it. But uh, And I tell people one of the funny parts about it is that if you listen to Frank Sinatra's um, uh, Strangers in the Night, mm. you'll hear the very same beat <laughs> done very quietly. Strangers in the night, boom, ba 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 ba, boom, ba 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 ba. And of course, all the years I spent with Nancy Sinatra was thirty-three years doing all his stuff, her stuff. And then I, I was almost eleven years with John Denver doing all of John's major hits. What a sweetheart of a guy. You work so much with Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys as well. It's It's been an interesting journey for Brian uh, through the years, the new movie uh, based on his life. And uh, do you still keep in touch with Brian after all these years? I just saw Brian. I was working on a documentary at a studio in Hollywood where Brian used to do most of the records. And when we finished the documentary, I was in a big studio uh, the the uh, producer of this particular documentary said, Hal, there's some people over here who want to say hello to you. And he took me next door, and there was Brian and his wife, Melinda. And we had a great get-together, took some nice pictures together, or at least the, the producer did of that documentary. It's a documentary on the studio called, today it's called East West. But in those days it was called Western Recorders. Put together by Bill Putnam, uh, a tremendous um, electronics guy of many years ago, who and he was the guy that built uh, the United Western Studios in those days. We're talking with Hal Blaine here on Downtown. Hal, I wanted to ask you about one of the most iconic recordings uh, you were a part of, uh, Simon and Garfunkel's The Boxer, and uh, the incredible drum work on that. Can you tell the story of uh, where and how you set up your drums to get that sound? <laughs> well, you know how these stories get told from one to another, and the things turn around. 
What happened was that we were recording in New York at CBS up on the 7th or 8th floor. It was a Saturday or Sunday. Building was closed. And we were working on this song. We had done the track. And uh, I, there was a, a feeling that I want, something I wanted to do on the end of the song where the chorus starts singing, la-di-da, bang. I wanted an explosion to happen there each time. So Roy Halley was the great engineer in those days, a terrific engineer, wonderful guy. And uh, he used to walk around and clap his hands together and, until he heard a natural echo somewhere. When he might have been in the corner of a room, might have been in the center of a gigantic ballroom. Whatever it was, as he approached the, ele the elevator door and he clapped his hand, he heard what he wanted and he said, put the drums right here. And the guys brought my drums in. And we said, here we go. And I had a, uh, uh, I'm wearing a headset, of course. Nobody around, nobody near me. So anyone who was near me didn't hear what I was hearing in my headset. All they heard was the explosions each time, and I was listening to la-di-da, bang. <laughs> and at one point, in perfect synchronization, as I was coming down on this explosion, the elevator door opened, and there was, <laughs> there was a security officer standing there. And this was a Saturday or Sunday. Nobody was supposed to be in the building. And I, he, he had the look on his face like somebody just killed him. <laughs> and, you know, New, New York and Chicago, some of those places were famous for that. They never knew when they were going to get a shotgun blast. And so the door opened as I came down crashing these drums. And the, and the guy had the look of, on his face of, oh, no, I just died. The doors closed, and that was the end of it. He was gone, and we never saw him again. That got on the record, but what the story that came out was that somehow they heard elevator and they wanted, there were many people asked me, how did they get you down in the elevator shaft? <laughs> Didn't you get all greasy from the cables? How in the world did you, could you stand the noise or the heat or the, the, the running of the elevators? I was never in an elevator. How did they get those drums down there? It's funny how those things build and build and build. Hal, before we let you go, I wanted to ask you, too, about uh, another legend about you, the rubber stamp, Hal Blaine Strikes Again. Well, that's one of those stories that, you know, every once in a while, unfortunately, if uh, uh, I did a movie or something, and they would call me three, four days later and say, somehow the engineering department lost the drum track, and so could you come in and, and redo your part? And then I'd walk in there, and this happened at 20th Century Fox. There was a pile of music sitting there by my drums. It must have, well, I'm, you know, almost six feet. This music must have been at least four and a half feet tall. It was a piece of music for every, probably 70, 80 instruments. And so as I was slowly going through one by one, Every once in a while, I saw what looked to me, it kind of looked like a pickle with a little nostril on it or something. And I started asking people, what is this? And they said, that's the rubber stamp of Manny Klein, who was one of the great trumpet players. 
and once and every time he did a, a recording, he stamped his his little nose. <laughs> he had a big, rather a large nose. He stamped it with the stamp that he had. It was just a simple circle that looked like it's sort of like a pickle with a little nostril on the end of it. And I thought, my God, if I had something like that, I could just breeze through this music, just uh, letting it flap along. And every time I'd see my stamp, I knew what my part was. So that's how that started. It started with a rubber stamp, and I've done it. I've done it for the rest of my life, and it's become kind of famous or synonymous with me when I do a lot of these autograph sessions like we just did. People always ask me about my stamp. I'm sitting here looking at it right now. Well, Hal, it's a real treat for us to speak with you. Uh, we can't wait to see the movie The Wrecking Crew now out on DVD and, and Blu-ray. Hal, thank you so much for taking time to visit with us. Uh, we wish you good health and continued success, sir. Rich, thank you so much, and I say hi to all your listeners out there. Just have fun, drive careful. Thanks uh, for joining us this week on the podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hope you'll join us next time right here on Downtown.